Amen. All right, we're in Exodus chapter 34. We're going to wrap up the book of Exodus next Sunday. So there's 40 chapters. We're going to do 34, number 34 this morning. So next week, pack your lunch. <laughs> we'll get out 233. No, just kidding. We're going to do the last six chapters next week, actually. And uh, they, they repeat a lot of, uh, of some of the stuff that we've seen. And so we're not going to delve in real deep. We're going to do a bit of a, a skim across the, the back six chapters of the book, okay? But uh, this is the last chapter that we'll look in depth at, uh, Exodus chapter 34. The first time Moses went up Mount Sinai and received from God those Ten Commandments, inscribed on stone with the finger of God. While all that was happening up on top of the mountain and he was meeting with the Lord, we saw down the bottom of the mountain was a whole other scene happening. As Israel, the nation of Israel began to wonder what had happened to their leader, they took Aaron. Uh, They said, we don't know what's happened to Moses. And the Bible says they they fashioned this golden calf and they cast off all restraint and they began to worship around this golden calf. And we've seen over the last number of, of messages through the book of Exodus that apart from the mediation of Moses, apart from his prayer and his intercession, that the Lord said that he would destroy the, all these children of Israel, the the nation of Israel uh, for their idolatry and the intercession of Moses as their mediator saved them. Nevertheless, the result was this. God said, my presence I will remove from you. And so the tent of meeting was moved outside from amongst the, the, the camp and God said, I'll fulfill my promise to you as a nation. You will go and inhabit the land, but my presence is not going to go Uh, with you. And as we saw last week, following Israel's repentance and the further prayers of Moses, there was a restoration of the relationship with the Lord and he promised he would go with them. And this uh, scene happens as Moses is praying. He says to the Lord, show me your glory. And God has said, okay, I will. I'll, I'll let all my goodness pass before you. And so now we come back onto this whole thing as we come to verse uh, 1 of chapter 34 and it says this. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. So we know the first tablets were broken when Moses came down the mountain discovered all that was happening amongst the people of Israel. Uh, In his anger, he took those stones that were inscribed by the finger of God and he threw them down and he broke them. It's really a a picture for us of man's inability to keep the law of God. You know what Romans tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The first tablets were provided by the Lord, but now the second tablets, Moses is told to go and cut these tablets himself. They were to be provided by him, and this is a picture of Jesus for us. See, Jesus said this about himself, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. Think of Moses, and when he says that, I didn't come to cast these things down and to break them. He said, I've not come to destroy them, but to fulfill them. And so the second uh, set of tablets that Moses is going to take up the mountain and God is going to, or Moses will inscribe at the instruction of the Lord, will be brought back down. They point us to Jesus. They will be brought back down and they will be placed in the ark. And Jesus said, it's prophesied of Jesus this, I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is written in my heart. And so, this is this picture of Jesus. The first tablets being busted, man can't keep the law. The second tablets, the picture of Christ for us, he will fulfill the law. And so, 
You get the first trip up Mount Sinai, the second trip up Mount Sinai. And sandwiched in between is this account of Israel's wickedness that we've seen, the worship and the idolatry around this golden calf. And it, it's just kind of a cool thing when you think about it because in the, crash, in the midst of these uh, two accounts of Moses heading up the mountain and all this wickedness happening in between, you know, you might think, well, Sin would defeat the purpose of God, but not so. And so it is with you and I. You know, sometimes sin, sin leaves us with this great sense of defeat. Like Moses, we break the law of God. Like the, like the children of Israel, we participate in idolatry. And, you know, there was a time in our lives because of sin before Christ, the presence of God was removed from our lives. And just as Moses mediated for Israel, so Jesus mediated for us on the cross. And when Israel repented, they were restored to the presence of God. And when in repentance from sin and in faith we turn to Jesus Christ as our mediator, of course the presence of God in our lives uh, was restored. And so, you know, I think, I think about this story and it's a story that to me reminds me that that sin does not defeat the purposes of God. Maybe you think about your own life, even right now. You think, man, I'm wrestling with this issue. I'm struggling with that. Look, sin will not defeat the purposes of God because God has made provision for the failure of his people in his son, Jesus Christ. Now it says in verse two, the Lord speaking to Moses, be ready by the morning. And come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no fox or herds graze opposite the mountain. Now in Exodus 33, uh, where we were last week, Moses received this great answer to prayer where God said to him, I'll fulfill, you know, Moses cried out to him and said, look, you'll f you said you fulfill your promise to us, but you said you wouldn't send your presence. Otherwise, we might be destroyed. And Moses began to plead with the Lord for Israel, you know, for what they called a disastrous word. And Moses prayed to the Lord and he said, you know, we need you, God. We need your presence, not just your promise. And, and unless you go with us, do not send us from this place. And as I mentioned earlier, when, when the Lord responded to this plea and answered Moses, he said, my presence will go with you. And Moses made this request of God. Please show me your glory. And now as Moses heads up the mountain, the Lord will show him his glory. And the Lord, you know, says, don't let anyone be seen on the mountain except you. No flocks, no herds, nothing. This was for the protection of the people because the Bible tells us that no one can see the glory of God and live, right? And so this was God speaking on behalf of the protection of the people. So verse four says, so Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone and the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. What a... What an awesome uh, picture, a scene we have here. The Lord stands there with Moses and he proclaims to him his name. A name has meaning, right? For the Lord to proclaim his name means that he revealed his nature to Moses. He was revealing himself to him. He was making himself known. You know, when the, when the birth of our Savior Jesus was foretold, the angel said to Mary and Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus revealed the work and the character and the nature of this boy child to save the people of God from sin. And now God, as he proclaims his name, is going to make his attributes and his, and his nature and his character uh, known to be revealed to Moses. He says in verse six, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. The nature of God revealed here. says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful. I think about um, men when, when they commit a crime. There's a need for justice to be served. Crime should be punished. We believe that. We believe in, in justice. Justice should be administrated. We want offenders to pay for their crimes. There should be conviction for wrongdoing because that is what is just. But men also need something else. People, we need something else. Not only judgment, not only justice, not just penalty and conviction, but human beings need mercy. You know, often so much of, of things that people do that are wrong are, are due to ignorance or uh, mistake or to blindness or to darkness in their life. And, you know, I would say, you know, lots of times, don't you feel like you're stumbling through your humanity, living life, trying to serve God, and we all make mistakes? Some take it further and they have crimes. But we all sin and we all need something more than just justice. We need something more than pity. We need mercy. In the condition of our humanity, we need a great high priest who's familiar with our failings. And as God begins to reveal his glory, his goodness to Moses, remember last week he said, I'll let all my goodness pass before you. As he begins to reveal his goodness to Moses, the first thing that God reveals is this. He's merciful. God is merciful. The Bible says a a bruised reed, he won't break. A smoldering wick, he he won't snuff out because he's merciful. And and you and I, we don't need to be afraid of him. As, As a father has mercy on his child, so the Lord has mercy on those who fear him, the Bible says. Not afraid, but healthy fear and healthy respect. You know, I was, I was thinking about that. I was thinking of my kids, especially when they were little, little. You know, I watch some of these little, little ones come up. The way as a dad, you, you just want to have mercy on you. You just, oh, just take hold of them and hold them and squeeze them and feel their skin and touch their hair and love them and kiss their cheeks. I mean, think of your heavenly father. As a, as a father has mercy on his child, so the Lord has mercy on those who fear him. He's a merciful God. The Lord, the Lord merciful and gracious. You know, it said, if mercy is not getting, if mercy is not getting what you deserve, then grace is getting what you do not deserve. F.B. Meyer said this about grace. He said, there's no greater word in language than the word that stands for the undeserved free gift of the love of God. Grace. God is gracious. And we know, we say we're, we're saved by grace. Not by works that no man should boast. Not by tears. Not saved by prayers. Not saved by our feelings. There was no good in us that attracted God to us. He simply loves us because he chose to love us. He set his affections upon us. He set his love on us by his own choice. And think about this. He won't withdraw it. Even in spite of sin. Even in spite of the waywardness of our hearts. Even in spite of our wanderings. He loves us. And because of grace. He gives us what we do not deserve. Isaiah prophesied and he said in Isaiah 30, 18. Uh, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. God, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious. And then he says, slow to anger. 
Not only is God merciful and gracious, he's slow to anger. I'll read to us 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I love that when that happens because I thought, man, sweet. I've got that all interwoven through my message this morning. Thank you, Lord. God has things he wants to say to his church. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 tells us that love is kind. It's not easily anchored. It's not irritable. You know, often we think, you know, I get issues of sin going on and sin's cut off the mercy of God in my life. But look, God's not actually that easily angered. You thought your wanderings turned off the tap of his mercy. But he is waiting to be gracious to you. See, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And God, who is love, is slow to anger. You know, Moses thought that, I, I just imagine that as this whole scene's going on and he's been interceding on behalf of the people, he probably thought that it was his prayers that averted the wrath of God from being poured out on the children of Israel. But I would say that God desired to undeceive him just like he wants to undeceive us because our hearts de- deceive us. God desired to show him that, it, that his prayers had been anticipated and they were only a reflection of the long-suffering, slow-to-anger heart of God that patiently waits for his people. He, he waits throughout the, the ages to manifest his grace and his mercy to people. And I would say this to us this morning. Don't let your heart deceive you. You, you. you think that you wore out the patience of God. But it takes a far greater sinner than you to wear out God's patience. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He won't run away on you. He will not fail you. He led you to trust him and he will not let his love or his faithfulness fail. And you can add it up. You can do the math. Sung this morning about the sun and the moon declare who you are. You think about the universe. God flung the stars into the heavens and we cannot find the boundaries of the heavens or the universe or the galaxies. It's just more and more to be discovered. More and more stars. More and more planets. It's just reaching to boundaries beyond anything anyone could ever imagine. And that's how God's steadfast love and faithfulness is. There's more to be discovered. And and you may not be able to count on anything in this life. You may not even be able to count on yourself. But you can count on the nature of God. Verse 7 again says, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That word forgiving is simply the word giving with a prefix added to it, right? For, forgiving. It means this, intense giving. He's an intense giver. He gives much to his children. Uh, Giving is forgiving and forgiveness is absolute giving. Now God doesn't wink at sin. He doesn't take it lightly. He doesn't gloss over it. But when we sin and we come to him in repentance, he remembers not our sin, but he recalls his mercy and his grace and his abounding steadfast love and his faithfulness. He comes to himself. He reminds himself of the work of his son that he made provision and he forgives our sin. And he remembers it not. You know, I was thinking about that. I thought, man, you know, I don't know how you look at yourself. I know how I look at myself. I'm hard on myself. I know how Christians tend to look on one another. We don't see our brothers and sisters necessarily and other believers in Christ. We see them through their sins sometimes. But God, when he looks on us or when he looks on our brothers and sisters in the Lord, what does he see? He sees Jesus. He sees all the character and the righteousness of Jesus that has been imputed to us. And forgiveness means not simply that you are forgiven and then saved from the results of your sin. 
Forgiveness means that God will treat you as though you had never ever committed any sin before. The slate is wiped clean. The, the account of your debt has been erased. There's no record. Verse 7 goes on. But, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children and their children's children to the third and fourth generation. God is forgiving. But by no means will he just wipe the record clean. First, we must get right with God. We must repent. We must turn from our sin in repentance and turn in faith to Jesus Christ. And instantly we're forgiven. God pardons sin. But we all know the reality of this is that often that does not stop the consequences of my sin or your sin. You know, there's lots of things that any one of us could go out and commit some crime, some terrible sin that could affect our whole family and have bearings on our family uh, for generations, on our children and on our grandchildren and on our great-grandchildren. God forgives, but iniquity can still visit other generations, he says. The Lord, the Lord. What a great picture of God as he reveals his nature and all these things. Verse eight says, And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. When God revealed his nature to Moses, when he revealed his name, Moses took his place in the dust. He fell on his face and he began to worship the Lord. See, that is the result when God descends, when he condescends and reveals himself to his creation. When the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me and blameless. The book of Genesis tells us that Abraham fell on his face and worshiped God. When he appeared to Joshua as the commander of the army of the Lord, Joshua fell on his face and worshiped. When the glory of the Lord filled the temple that Solomon built, the children of Israel bowed down with their faces to the ground and they worshiped and praised the Lord. And when God revealed himself to Moses here on Mount Sinai, Moses as well took his place in the dust and worshiped. And the last thing mentioned in verse seven was that, one of the last things was that God will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and their children's children to the third and fourth generation. And and Moses, instead of like showing indignation, what, you can't do that. He doesn't shake his fist at God. Moses accepts the nature of who God is and instead of challenging the righteousness of such things, he bows down and he begins to worship. That, that, That is a great example for us to follow. And Moses said this in verse nine. And now if I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Moses pulls out this title that we've been seeing for the children of Israel throughout our studies in Exodus, stiff-necked. We've seen that description before. And you would think that the very fact that these are a stiff-necked people that that would have been reason enough for God to say, no, I'm not going with you. But for Moses, after learning of, of God's nature, that he's, that he's gracious, that he's merciful, that he's slow to anger, that he's forgiving, that he's all these things that we've previously mentioned, it's like he's saying this. If that's the kind of God you are, if that's the nature of who you are, then you are exactly the kind of God us people need. You're the kind of God stiff-necked people need. You're the kind of God stiff-necked people want. You know, are, are you stiff-necked? I, I woke up yesterday morning with the stiffest neck. I thought, this is, this is so coincidental considering what I got to preach. I was saying that to my wife. I said, my neck is killing me. Wait, is this, is this a sermon thing? 
Is God teaching me something? The Lord is the God of stiff-necked people. What a, what a cool thought when you think about it. Because he's the Lord. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping his steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving transgression and sin. Listen, I got to tell you. If you're a stiff-necked person, this is the kind of God you want to serve. Because you need grace. And you need mercy. You need a God who is tender and forgiving and strong. And you know, it's like Moses is saying, you know, no one can get anything out of these people. I've been leading these people through the desert. But a God like you can because you're merciful and you're gracious. So forgive our sin, take us, pardon our iniquity, make us your inheritance, please. I love it. And I find comfort in that. Because I'm stiff-necked. I'm obstinate. Like you, I'm a self-willed human being. And that means this, that this God, the Lord, is equipped to handle all of my emergencies and he's equipped to handle all your emergencies. He's equipped to handle all of your resistance and he's equipped to handle all of my resistance. You know, my heart's really good at Producing thorns and thistles and stinging nettles are a specialty maybe. <laughs> but from a stubborn, self-willed human being, God in his grace brings forth fruit for his name's sake. And he'll save us. I would say this, you know, the Lord, Jesus, he's into fixer-uppers. <laughs> he likes restoration. He likes to buy old decrepit cars or homes or fields that look like they should produce nothing. And, and he works his mercy and his grace in and he brings forth fruit and a crop for his name. The inheritance of the Lord, think about this, the inheritance of the Lord is his people. He found this nation, Jacob, Israel, in a desert and Moses says, make us our inheritance, your inheritance. And the Lord says, okay, you'll be the apple of my eye. That's why the Bible says, blessed is the people whose God is the Lord. That's us today. Blessed is the people whose God is the Lord. Because the Lord, the Lord is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And we think about Jesus, the New Testament tells us that, that he came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. And it was the proud and self-righteous Pharisees who resented him. They, they scoffed at him. They said, look at this man. He eats with sinners and publicans. And, and you know, this morning we should thank God that Jesus eats with sinners. And, and the more the Holy Spirit reveals that to to us, the more we come to understand the plague of our own heart and the issue of sin, the more we come to understand the plague of our own heart, we, we come to greater comprehend the grace of God, the, the wondrous mystery that he would save us. And when that happens, you, you just begin to crave the presence of God more and more. Wow, God, you deal with a stiff-necked person like me? You're so good. You know, we are so powerless to contend and to fight against our flesh. Yet the more we lean on grace, the more we uh, trust in the nature of Jesus Christ, the more and more we lean on those everlasting arms, the more we come to hope in, in the gospel of Jesus Christ who saved us in his grace. And Moses got all those very things. So I get it, Lord. You reveal your nature. Man, we're stiff-necked. please. Take us to be your inheritance. Verse 10. Lord speaking. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels such as not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. you know, I, 
I, I just have to believe that's the heart of God for you and I. That it's an awesome thing that God wants to do. And so as Moses, Moses makes this quest, take us as your inheritance, the Lord says, okay, I, I, I will take you as my inheritance. And though I said my presence, I, my presence is going to be with you and I'm going to renew the covenant and, and I'm going to bind myself to you. And so as the Lord says, you know, on one hand, I'm going to bind myself to you. On the other hand, he's going to begin to just remind them of some of his expectations that he has upon them as the people of God. Now through Christ, God has bound himself to us just like he did to Israel and it is not without expectation. He expects that we will conform to the ideals of Christian faith and Christianity and the truths of God's word and that we would produce fruit and that we would live for his kingdom and that we would learn and grow in obedience of heart and life and respond to him. But as God points that out, he, one of the things he says is, I will do unprecedented miracles amongst you. Which I think is unbelievable. I mean, all you got to do is think of the account of Exodus so far. We want to go back over all the miracles? We could just go through the list. Okay, the Passover, the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, uh, the water issue, you know, water coming from the rock, manna coming down from heaven, the glory of God coming down on Mount Sinai, God speaking audibly for the people of Israel to hear. I mean, just miracle after miracle after miracle. And if that isn't enough, God says, oh, those are unprecedented. The, the stuff that is about to come, it's, I'll do things for you that are awesome if you will be my people. And so the Lord says in verse 11, as he begins to lay out some expectations, he says, observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. That's a lot of ites. Verse 12, take care lest you make a covenant with its inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. For you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Verse 15. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of the sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. I'm not going to go really deep into a lot of these expectations that the Lord lays out this morning fairly quickly. The covenant expectations that he pl places on his people. But the first thing God says is this. My children are not to be unequally yoked. What do children of light have in common with children of darkness? The New Testament tells us. And so there is a need as we begin to... as as the children of Israel and for us, as we serve God, there is a need to be careful not to enter into covenant with the inhabitants of the land, the inhabitants of the world. Why? Lest you be led to worship their gods, the Lord's concerned about. And in saying this, God brings further insight into his nature. He says, my name is jealous. What a, it's an interesting thought about God. He is a jealous God. I, I would call it a healthy jealousy. Like a, like a man or woman, you know, longing for the attention and the affections of their spouse. God is jealous for your time. God is jealous for your attention. He is jealous for the affections of your heart. He is jealous for your worship. And when you give yourself uh, to God, you are giving to him the very desire of his heart. You. You're the desire of his heart. And God is not willing that other things should rob him of us. And so he warns his people, as you go into the land, destroy their worship practices. 
Do not enter into marriage with them. Do not participate with them. Do not be unequally yoked. He says in verse 17, you shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. The Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, they, they were groups of people who would, would cast metal images of their gods. As we've been going throughout the book of Exodus, it's been clear the Lord says, don't, don't fashion images after me. But when he has given them anything that they're to build, like the Ark of the Covenant or the Table of Showbread or uh, the lampstand or whatever it is, the Lord has made it very clear when you make them, you are to hammer them out. You don't cast them, you hammer them and you make them out of beaten gold. And, and it's just kind of an interesting, interesting picture. See, God had a design for his people's redemption that gold would be hammered, not poured. And it's a picture of Jesus. He was beaten for our redemption. He was nailed to the cross. And God, from the start, that was his plan. And, and he chose to represent himself through beaten gold, not poured gold. Verse 18, you shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I command you. At the time appointed in the month of Abib. For in the month of Abib you came out of Egypt. All that opened the womb are mine. All your male livestock, the firstborn of your cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem and none shall appear before me empty handed. The feast of unleavened bread is, is also called Passover. The Lord is saying here that is to be kept uh, annually which is a reminder of the Egyptian exodus but also uh, reminded them of redemption through the shed blood of a lamb and pointed them to the Lamb of God who was eventually coming to take away the sins of the world. Redemption must happen through the blood of the Lamb. We see, see that there in, the, in that passage. And so God says, you, you shall not come before me empty handed and you shall do this annually. Verse 21. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest time you shall rest. Sabbath is, comes up lots in Exodus. I've been really personally challenged, challenged by that. And, you know, um, we experience the goodness of God to the, degree that we, to the degree that we learn to take time off from work, to rest, to trust him for provision, to trust him to provide. And, and God commanded his people that they were to take one day a week for rest, to regain focus for Sabbath, to have their vision of God renewed. And Sabbath was to be kept no matter what the workload. Did you see that there? He says, I don't care if it's plow time or harvest time. I don't care how busy it gets. Take a Sabbath. I think that's awesome that the Lord is concerned about our rest and about his, his people having downtime and, and working for the right motives. Verse 22, you shall observe the Feast of Weeks the first fruits of the wheat harvest and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times a year. And so three times a year, the people of Israel were to present themselves to the Lord at the tabernacle, eventually at the temple in Jerusalem. Unleavened bread, which at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which we already saw was Passover, uh, which pointed them to Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Uh, the Feast of Weeks, which happens 50 days after Passover. It's, um, of course, the time of Pentecost, pointing to the work of the Holy Spirit. And then the Feast, he says here, of ingathering, or we call it Tabernacles, which points to the father who wants to dwell amongst his people. Um, and so the Lord says three times a year, you, you go to the temple and you, you worship me. And it's just, I, as I read that, I just think, it's the heart of God is he just wants to be with his people. 
that it's a good thing when God's people gather together. You know, I was, we were praying before the service this morning. I was just looking forward to it because it's just good to gather with the people of God and to worship, to gather around the word of God, to fellowship and just to be with the Lord and to know that he's here with us. Verse 25, the Lord says, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened in it or let the sacrifice of the feast of Passover remain until morning. Leaven (coughs) is yeast, uh, symbolic of sin in the scripture. And the Lord says, when you offer blood, which is the way redemption is purchased by the shedding of blood, uh, symbols of sin like leaven are not to be offered with the blood. Of course, Jesus was a sinless sacrifice made for us on the cross. He, sh- he shed his sinless blood for us. It says, the, the feast of Passover shall not remain until morning. It rem- reminds us uh, of Jesus who hung on the cross for a short time and was quickly moved into the, into the tomb. Verse 26. The best, of your fruit, the best of your first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's mouth. Now, the first fruits were to be distributed, were, were not to be distributed by the children of Israel to whomever, wherever they deem necessary or worthy of need. It's important that you see this. This is a good, this is a good thing to know about tithes and offerings. Different things. You, you know, the Lord doesn't say, oh yeah, if you see your, na- your, your neighbor's needy, take of your first fruits and give it to your neighbor. He says, no, your first fruits go to the house of God. They, they were to be brought to the house of the Lord. And, and the same is true today. When we bring the first fruits, when we bring the tithe, we're to bring it to the house of the Lord. And we bring it to the place where we're being spiritually fed and it's distributed as the Lord sees fit and through the ministries of the house of the Lord. And then if you want to give money to, to people or, or to other ministries that you deem worthy, then God bless you. Do it with your money, not God's money. The tithe belongs to the Lord, he says here. Bring it to the house of God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. God is... That's kind of weird. It's the third time in Exodus the Lord states that. Did you know that? Seems like something obscure. You think, what? I, I mean, it, it shows obviously the tender heart of God and that God's people are to be compassionate and, and, and tender hearted that you don't take a mama's little one and cook it in her, her milk. But there's even more behind that because in ancient times, the fertility practices of the Canaanites was to do so. It was a fertility rite that they would do that. And God says, no, you you don't do those games. You trust me with those things. I'm the God of the womb. Verse 27. The Lord said to Moses, write these words for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. What an awesome scene, eh? What an awesome, to be with, and just imagine, as we've talked about before with Moses, 40 days and 40 nights, and he doesn't need to eat or drink in the presence of God. He's just, the presence of God, being in the presence of God, totally, physically, and spiritually sustained him. Verse 29. When Moses came down from the mountain, from Mount Sinai, with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. I mean, if you just contrast this to Exodus chapter 32, when Moses came down the first time with the Ten Commandments, uh, in Exodus 32, his face comes, he comes down, and the Bible says this, that clearly on his face, the dude was angry. He was angry, but here he comes down, 
The second time, and his face is shining. The first time, he found and discovered that the people were participating in idolatry. Worshipping gods that they had made with their own hands. The second time he returns to a people who are afraid to come near to him. The first time he comes down, he smashed the stones on the ground. The second time he comes down, he takes them and they will be placed in the Ark of the Covenant. Now the people were afraid when they saw the reflected glory of God on the face of Moses. You know, I was just thinking about it. Ivan, we had a great talk this morning. Someone said to him this week, there's something about your face. As he said that to me, I thought, it's the glory of God. Because when you spend time with the Lord, it reflects out of your life. See, when you behold God, when you spend time with God, your, your life is affected. You, you're, you are marked by the presence of God. And, and something interesting happens. I mean, it happened to Moses. As he was up there and he, he spent time with the Lord, he became less and less occupied with himself. He, he begins to use his favor with God to plead for the people. Because I have favor, then have favor on these people. He says things like that. And, and Moses was even unaware as he came down uh, the mountain that his face was shining because he was so engaged with the beauty of God that he was delivered from self. What a neat thought. He, he was freed from being occupied with his self because he had been in the presence of God. Remember when the disciples were pra- placed on trial and in the book of Acts and they were brought before the religious leaders and they peppered these uneducated men with questions. And when they couldn't take them down, Acts records for us that the religious leaders took note and they said, these guys have been with Jesus. Their lives reflected the glory of the Lord. Verse 31. But Moses called to them and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all of the people of Israel came near and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Interesting, he he, he covers up because he doesn't want them to see that the glory is fading as he is removed from the presence of God. Verse 34. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. You remember uh, the New Testament tells us about Moses shining on another mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus went up that mountain with, with Peter, John, and Andrew, right? And they were up there, and, and Jesus was transformed before them. It, his, his glory was no longer veiled, and he shone. And appeared with him, Moses and Elijah, and they shone. But the thing about them was the same about Moses on Mount Sinai, that they themselves were not inherently shining, They were reflecting the glory of the Son of God, Jesus, as he stood there, shining in front of them. And for Jesus, it wasn't just just his face that shone, but the Bible says his raiment shone. His clothes were transformed, all of him, just, just lit right up and shone with the glory of God. Because he was, is God. I want you to turn with me this morning, just in closing, to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Grab your Bibles, turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Chapter 4 verse 4 of 2 Corinthians tells us that Jesus, Jesus is the image of God. And verse 6 says, 
chapter 4. For God who said let light shine out of darkness. Has shone in our hearts. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. In the face of Jesus Christ. Look fellow Christians. As we look on the as we look on the face of Jesus, we are looking at the very glory of God. Uh, elsewhere in the New Testament, we're told, let us look to him. Let us fix our eyes on him who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Boy, the nature of the God that we serve, he's so awesome, isn't he? How's your neck this morning? Feeling stiff? You know who you should bow down and worship then, right? You know who the God is for stiff-necked people? The Lord. Yahweh. Jehovah. He's, he's merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he forgives our sin. Man, he's the God I want to serve. Amen? I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. Why don't you guys stand with me? Let's pray this morning. God, you are so awesome. I thank you, Lord, that your word tells us no mind can perceive, no eye has seen the things that you have in store for those who love you. You told the children of Israel when you made them your inheritance that you had awesome things in store for them. And God, I thank you that you are so merciful and gracious. I thank you that that is your nature. You're forgiving abounding in steadfast love, faithfulness, slow to anger. I, I thank you, Lord, that this morning I, I can just know with 100% confidence that you long to reveal your mercy and grace to us. And so, God, we just come before you this morning and we confess we need you. That we recognize that we can be obstinate that we can be self-willed, that we participate and have issues of sin in our lives and, and that's even when you've been merciful and gracious to us before. And so God, we just confess we need your mercy and we need your grace. Lord, this morning we repent of our sin and in faith we turn to Jesus Christ who you provided as the provision for our sin. I thank you, Lord, that nothing can separate us from your love. Nothing. I thank you, God, that you have not removed your hand from any one of our lives. And so, God, would you forgive us for allowing our hearts to deceive us if that has happened in our lives, that we thought you were angry or that you were unwilling to forgive. I thank you, Lord, that that's not the case. And may we be undeceived this morning. And may we, may we in faith believe you. May we trust you. May we put our hope in you. Thank you, Lord, that you are the God of stiff-necked people. Today, would you make us the apple of your eye, your inheritance, for your glory, for your name. Do awesome things in our lives, we pray. Do awesome things in our church, we pray, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.